Hola, you're listening to the Life in Paradise podcast. Have you ever wondered what it'd be like to live in the middle of a developing tourism town? Sounds great, right? Well, it doesn't come without challenges. Like most people listening, I had a steady job, lots of stress, worked my ass off so I could enjoy vacations. One day, I came to the realization that I needed to embed myself into a vacation permanently. So that's what I did. Now my home is San Juan del Sur, Nicaragua. It's a small town on the Pacific coast with a population of about 15,000 people. I have a small sailboat charter business which pays the bills and leaves a bit left over to cover my habits. And even though we call it paradise, Nicaragua is still a third world country. So picture this, 36-year-old Texas guy and his two trusty Labradors are transplanted into a developing country and they're trying their hardest not to stick out like sore thumbs. These are the stories of what life is like, some good, some bad, but all entertaining. So sit back, relax, and live vicariously through me for about the next 30 or 45 minutes. And I promise you, this stuff can't be made up. Now I come and go as I please From down here up north and in between But baby, it's a shame Cause I always feel the same When I can't see Texas from here I can't see Texas from here No holiday time in San Juan del Sur, Nicaragua. My voice sounds a little bit off today because I've been battling a little bit of a throat issue. I don't know what it is, but I think it's some allergies or something, but I'm going to trudge through it, and if it's too painful to listen to, just skip this episode. But it is holiday time here, and how I know that is because there are parades every other day. I've talked about it before. The people here in Nicaragua love them some parades, and so whenever a holiday comes out, they parade. Even if they don't have a float or anything like a costume, they will take like a statue of the Virgin Mary and put it in the back of a pickup. And then they will drive the pickup at, at walking speed down the main road. There's only one road that goes in and out of town. And they will just walk behind it and then make a couple laps through town. Sometimes they'll have music going, sometimes they won't. But they love them some parades. They also have these things that they call bombas, which a bomba is like a pump, but a bomba, which I don't even know how you spell it differently, but bomba is like a bomb. And so it's similar to a firecracker, but they're huge. They're like the size of a baseball. Most of them just blow up on the ground, and it's about 10 times as powerful as a black cat or an M60. They have some that go up in the air and explode. But there's no fancy colors, there's no smoke stream, there's no jumping around and whizzing and whirring and chasing. It's just a big boom. And it sounds like a real bomb is going off. Luckily, I live far enough out of town that I can't hear, I can't hear the details that you can hear in town, but I can hear 
Every now and then, there's somebody that gets a hold of them around me. And in town, for some reason, they all go to where the church is, like the central square, and they set up these bombs, and they will do it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it gets more frequent the closer you get to Christmas and New Year's. But every major holiday, they set these things off, and there's stories about kids blowing their fingers off and people getting hurt every single year. I don't know where to buy these things. I've never seen them for sale. But my goal is to find one and blow it up and then report back because I've never actually blown one up myself, seen it in person. I always have heard them or I'll see someone running down the street to get away from one and then hear a gigantic boom. But I've never actually done it myself. So that's my goal. As soon as I do that, I'm going to report back. But the holiday season is definitely in full swing. And it's nowhere near as decorated as the holiday season in the U.S., You see occasional lights here and there and some occasional decorations. But the holiday spirit is not as intense as it is in the States. You don't get holiday coffee cups or you don't get people fighting over Christmas and happy holidays. People here just celebrate. And and there's a bunch of these small holidays between now and Christmas that it's like St. Joseph, Father of Jesus, Husband of Mary, Observance Day. And then there'll be a parade going down the road. And then I don't know if they use the same statues over and over again, but it seems like they've got a lot of these things. And there'll be a different statue in the back of the same truck. Recently, a volcano erupted about 100 miles from me. No big deal. It was just a minor eruption. Typical media sensationalism. Blew it up. But anyway, a volcano spurted a little bit. And it just so happened to be on or near a particular holiday. And what this holiday was, and I wouldn't even say holiday, more like an observance. Like they just, they kind of note it. So anyway, what this day was, was it was a day in which a saint predicted a volcano eruption. And so the people left the town and the volcano actually erupted. And so this saint became known as a great guy who, who like saved everyone through his, his prediction. And that happened right around the time that this volcano just erupted. So that was parade-worthy. I uh, was asking Ronnie about it, and he told me, oh, yeah, it's the day of the volcano eruption prediction by St. blah, blah, blah. I don't remember what it was. He said it's only observed in areas of Nicaragua that are near a volcano. So if you live out on the east coast in the, you know, in the jungle on the Caribbean side, there's no volcanoes. They, don't have, they have no idea what that holiday is. So these holidays are, are real regional. They're specific to certain areas. And so I asked him, what holidays do they have over there, you know, like on the other side of the country? He was like, I don't know. I've never been there. So it's not readily available information unless you live in that area. There's even holidays here in San Juan del Sur that Ronnie doesn't know what they are. And that's because he's from a town that's about four hours away. He just moved here five or six years ago. So he knows that there are holidays and he participates in the parties or whatever, but he doesn't really know that true, true meaning of all of them. And for those of you that are new listeners, uh, Ronnie is the caretaker of the property where I live. So he doesn't work directly for me. He's paid by the owner. The owner doesn't live here. He just rents out the property. So anyway, he's kind of my source for all these random questions that I have. And I don't know. He may be wrong about some stuff. I don't know. There's probably people out there that are listening that may know more information. So If you're from Nicaragua and you have some answers to these questions or you can comment, please email us, nikasailinsurf at gmail.com.
I've talked a little bit before about how scared Nicaraguans are of dogs. And it's just the funniest thing to me to see these people that are deathly afraid of dogs. And I can only assume that 90% of them have never been bitten. And the reason I can assume that is because the dogs here that bark, they don't bite. Most of the dogs here just bark out of fear or frustration. They're not actually aggressive. But the people here don't understand that. And what's making me think about this is I was on the beach the other day with the dogs, and I was throwing the ball for them in the water. And so Bentley will get the ball, and she'll come running back out onto the beach. And if she sees someone that she thinks she knows, she runs up to them, like real waggly tail, you know, waving back and forth real fast. Very typical pet me because I know you behavior. And she does this. And there's been one lady who three times in a row, for whatever reason, Bentley thought she knew her. And she doesn't run up to them and, you know, rub all over them. She runs up to them. And then once she figures out she doesn't know them, she just veers off and comes back to me. So I don't even bother calling her away. I just let it happen just so I could see the people's reaction. And then afterwards, I apologize and say, oh, I'm so sorry. But I could probably call her to me if I wanted to, but that's, that's my secret. So anyway, this particular lady, three days in a row, I'm playing fetch with the dogs on the beach. And the first time, you know, Bentley comes out of the water with the ball in her mouth, running up to this lady. And she's with two friends. And she grabs one of her friends and slides her friend between herself and Bentley and Billy's like, oh, I don't know you, and just veers off and comes back. And she looks at me with this big frown on her face and just looked at the, like the look of death. I'm like, oh, sorry, I'm sorry, you know, speaking in Spanish. And she kind of rolls her eyes and walked off. And I was like, okay, all right. You're about to really see what can happen. So the next day she comes walking by, with, not with her friends. She was totally by herself this time. And so I threw the ball so high it went over her head that she couldn't really see it. She was looking right into the sun. And so I launched the ball super high with this thrower thing that I have. It went over her head. And so, but I threw it, so it was right behind her. So she was walking towards me. I threw it over her head. And she was about 40 or 50 yards away when I threw it. So Bentley is running full speed down the beach. And this lady thinks that Bentley is coming to eat her brains. So at the last minute, Bentley just veers around her because she wants the ball. She doesn't care about the lady. So she just veers around her, runs the ball down, snatches the ball up, runs past the lady coming back to me and brings it back to me and spits it out. And the lady threw a fit. She was so mad. And then so I was like, I'm sorry that she wasn't coming for you. You know, she, she thought you were her friend the other day, but today she wasn't even trying to get you or come to you. And so she did the same thing, scoffs and rolls her eyes and marched off. Well, then the third day, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm done jacking this lady. Like, I'm not going to mess with her anymore. So we're playing fetch, and she comes walking up behind me. And once again, Bentley thought she knew her. So she ran up to her and said, like, Senor! She's like, do these dogs not bite? And I'm like, no, no, they don't bite. They're your friends. She's like, ah. she's coming up to me like she's going to bite me. And all I could do was just laugh. And I said, no, she's not. She's coming up to you because she thought she knew you. And the other day she ran past you because she was chasing her ball. She was like, they better not bite. And all I could do was just laugh. I said, I promise you, they will not bite you. They are so scared of being bitten, it, it cracks me up. And the other day, somebody came to look at the pigs, potential pig buyer. And 
full grown-ass man, I mean 5'8", 150 pounds, comes in, gets off his motorcycle, and then the dogs come running up to greet him, and he hops up on his motorcycle with his feet up on the seat and his helmet in his hand like he's getting ready to defend his life from these two 50-pound dogs. And I just started laughing. I grabbed my gut. It was doubled over. And he's like, they don't bite? And I was like, no, they don't bite. And so he gets off his motorcycle, and they were kind of just like, you know, circling around him, running, wagging their tails. And he does not take his eyes off them. And he was a little caught off guard because there was two dogs circling him, both running in opposite directions, and he couldn't watch them both at the same time. And so I had enough. I started unleashing on this guy. I was like, you, a grown man, scared of these two little, tiny, 50-pound dogs? I was like, that's hilarious. I said, you kill pigs for a living. You take a knife and you cut the throat of a pig and you're scared of these little dogs and was laughing and laughing. And finally, I could tell he had had enough. He did not want to get made fun of anymore. But he took it for a long time. He was like, you know, dogs can be dangerous. They can bite you and rip your skin. I've had friends that have been bitten before. I said, you're right. They, they are and they can, but these guys are not. They're, they're nowhere near dangerous. I said, I don't know if these dogs would bite someone if their life depended on it. Maybe they would. I'd like to think they would, but I really don't know. But it never ceases to make me laugh. The other day I was driving home from town and driving down the same dirt road that I go down every day. And I've talked before about the pig injector man. And he is a man of many talents. So when he's not injecting pigs with vitamins... He just does odd jobs around the neighborhood. He cuts grass, trims trees, gathers firewood, and sells it. Just whatever, whatever he can do to earn some money. And so I saw him the other day setting up these poles in the ground with basically like two Ys, like two slingshots, but much bigger, sticking up out of the ground, probably four or five feet tall. And then he was laying a, a log across the top of those two giant slingshot-looking sticks. And I thought, man, I bet you they're going to, like, dig a well or something down there. Like, he's, he's rigging up something to tie a rope to. And so I watched him, and a couple of days go by, and I see him out there digging. And I said, oh, man, they're digging a well. And they were only about knee-deep the first time I saw him digging. And so I waited a couple of days. I wanted to see what kind of progress they're going to make. And then I kind of forgot about it. I didn't see him out there. I kept missing him or whatever. So then I saw him out there about two weeks later, and there was two guys standing in that same area where they set up those sticks and there was a rope going down and I could tell that someone was probably down there. So I had to stop, stopped the truck in the middle of the road, walked over there and sure enough, man, they had about a seven or eight foot diameter hole, probably 40 or 50 feet deep with a guy down there with a pickaxe and a shovel and he would bust up the rock and then shovel it into a five gallon bucket. And then at the top of that well, they had that, pole that went across the top of the hole with a pulley tied to it and they had a line run through that pulley and on one end of the line was the five gallon bucket and on the other end of the line was a stick about two and a half feet long that they'd tied to and so the pig injector man was kind of the one running the show he had one guy in the bottom of the hole and then another guy that was his job was to walk away from the hole pulling the rope through the pulley with the five-gallon bucket full of rocks on it whenever the guy at the bottom filled the bucket up. So the guy at the bottom would work, break up the rock, shovel it in the five-gallon bucket, holler up to the top, 
and the pig injector man would tell the other dude to start walking. And then as he walked away from the hole, it pulled the five-gallon bucket up with the pulley. And there were several things that were worth noting about this project, but one of them was that the pulley didn't even spin. It was so rusted and seized up, it just acted as a guide for the rope to go from the bottom of the hole to the pulley operator man. And so it just slid through the seized up wheel of the pulley. Didn't actually do any work. And so I was talking to him and I was asking him, how long have you guys been digging now? And he said, oh, about a week and a half. And I said, you've done all this by hand? And he said, yeah. I mean, it was a perfect cylinder and it went straight down. And it was so dark at the bottom that you could barely see the guy working. You could see like the water shimmering from where they had started to hit water, but you couldn't, you couldn't tell anything else. And so after a couple rounds of this, I saw filling a bucket, hauling it up, dumping it. I looked over, and there was a huge mound, you know, three or four dump truck loads worth of spoils that they had pulled out of this hole. And so about that time, I could tell that it was about to be lunchtime for them. And so they were talking, communicating. And so the guy at the bottom of the hole shouts up to the top, hey, throw me down a rope. Like, oh, yes, they're about to lift this guy out of here. So they threw a line down there, and it was tied off to a tree nearby. And then he, what he did at the bottom of the hole is he took the bucket off the line and made a hoop, like a little loop in it, and then sat in that like it was a swing, like it went right across the backside of his butt, sat back down in it. And then he used the rope that was tied to a tree with, with his hands to pull him up while the pig injector man got on the end of the line, which was normally used to haul the bucket up, to pull it. But see, the pig injector man, he's no little dude. He's a big dude. So he had to be the one to hoist this guy up out of the hole. So it took the guy using his own strength on a, on a rope and the pig injector man yanking on the string to help this guy. But he got out, no problem. It was not even a bit of an issue. You could tell it was a well-practiced maneuver. He got out, they ate their lunch, and I talked to him for a little bit. And I asked him how much it cost to dig that hole and how long it would take. He said, you know, it would take about three weeks. And he said... It cost about 25,000 Cordobas, and that's a little under $1,000. So in my mind, that's a pretty good deal. You get a well dug by hand for under 1000 bucks. Not too bad of a bargain. He did say that if they wanted the inside line with bricks, that was going to cost extra. Of course, he didn't know how much because the owner would provide all the bricks, all the mortar, all the sand, and they just provide the labor. So I'll continue checking on that, and I'll report back. I imagine they're probably laying bricks by now. This was about a week, week and a half ago. We had a bit of a pig scare the other day. Ronnie comes up to me, and he says, Hey, man, the pigs aren't wanting to eat their food. And I was like, What? Pigs don't want to eat their food? Normally, they're, like, knocking each other over to get to their food. So he said, Yeah, come here. And he will run out there, and he put their food in their bowls, and they kind of walked up to it and rooted around and then kind of walked away, ate a couple bites. And, of course, in my mind, I'm thinking, great, we've got four sick pigs that need to be sold, and they're sick, and the meat's probably going to be no good, and we're going to have to just kill them and end this, like $1,000 in the hole. I said, man, I think they're sick. And he said, no, I don't, I don't think they're sick. He goes, I just think that they're tired of their food or something. And I thought, well, okay, maybe so. So later that day, when I stopped to check on the guys that were working on the well, which happened to be the pig injector man, I told him, I said, man, those pigs aren't eating. Of course, the first thing he wanted to do, man, we need to inject them. We need to put some vitamins in them. 
I said, no, I think we're done injecting the pigs. If they don't make it, they don't make it. But I don't think injections are the answer. And so I went on about my day, and then that night when Felipe showed up, I kind of asked him about it. I said, hey, Felipe, man, these pigs aren't wanting to eat. He said, you know what? You need to inject them with some vitamins. And I said, man, Felipe, I've been injecting them so much. And he kind of gave me a spiel about how, you know, they get older and they get tired of their food, and you got to give them vitamins and make them want to eat. And I thought, well, we'll see. That's going to be a last-case scenario. So I told Ronnie, I said, man, just open that gate and just let them out. Just let them out for a while. And, man, he does not like letting them out. So against his better judgment, he opened the gate. We let them come out. And they normally kind of mill around and then do their thing, and then they go back in there on their own. Well, Ronnie and I got to walk around the property, and he was showing me some uh, some trees that I'd never seen that produce, like, these little peppers that are really good, little tiny, tiny peppers. And so he showed them to me, and we're walking around, and he goes, oh, no, the pigs. And I guess he forgot about them. And I, I remembered about them, but I wasn't worried. So he's like, oh, no, the pigs. So he takes off sprinting back across the property to where the little pig pen is, and they were nowhere to be found. No sign of any pigs. They were gone, and he was worried. So he runs into the guard shack, and he puts on his rubber boots, and he goes tromping through the woods with his stick and his machete, and he's you know, scrambling around, coming back. He's like, man, I think they're gone. I said, they're not gone. They're somewhere around here. They're not just going to go wild. He said, but you don't understand. Like, these pigs wander onto somebody's property, and they'll just kill them right there and eat them and say, well, they shouldn't have been wandering around. So then that kind of got me worried a little bit, and I was like, okay, all right, I'll start helping you. So I go get my shoes on, throw on a shirt on that's a little bit more thorn-proof than a tank top, and I go to Tron through the woods, and I can't find anything. Well, there's a river that runs near the property, and so Ronnie said, hey, I'm going to walk down through these woods to the river, and you drive down and park and start walking up the river. And I said, okay. So... I drove down there, parked the truck, started walking. No sign of any pigs. I hear Ronnie coming through the woods, and he's like, no, man, I didn't see anything. I said, all right, I'm going to go in the truck and go back up the hill. I'm going to go past my house. And there's another little Nicaraguan family that lives maybe three or 400 yards up the hill from me. I said, I'm going to go look up the hill. He goes, okay. So I hop in the truck, drive up the hill, go past our house. I'm looking around to see if I can see any pig tracks in the dirt road, and there's nothing. So I pull up to the neighbor's house, and there's all four of them, like, rooting around in this guy's property. And this house isn't much of a house. It's a lot like the house that I described uh, for Ronnie. So there's no front door, per se. There's just an opening to where you walk in. There's no, there was no gate. There's nothing, nothing to keep anything in or out. So I see them all rooting around, like, going inside these people's house and, like, knocking over their chairs and, like, eating their plants in, like, these little pots. I'm like, oh, no. Surely these people are going to be mad. So I walk over there, and there's to have, like, a little dog tied up um, near the house. And what that serves is, like, an alarm. So they tie the dog up so the dog can't wander off. But if anybody walks up, the dog barks, it alerts the owners, and they can get, come out there and do whatever they got to do. So this little dog's lying down in the shade, tied up, and these pigs are just around him, like sniffing on him, and he doesn't know what to think. He's just in a little ball, remaining calm. And I look over, and I see one pig, every part of it except its back right leg was inside these people's house. And I felt terrible. I was like, oh, no. So I started making the sound that I'd make whenever i take them food. And so I started making that sound, and they all looked up at me, and they came running 
So I started walking him down the hill. About that time, I called Ronnie and said, hey, man, I got him. He goes, okay, I'm, I'm coming up there. So Ronnie runs up there, and he meets me about halfway. The pigs are doing just fine following me. That's Bentley. She's not tied up, but she still barks. So Ronnie and I have two different approaches on wrangling pigs. He likes to chase them. I like to get them to follow me. And so they were doing just fine following me down the hill. But Ronnie didn't like that. So he gets behind them with his stick, and he tries to hurt them and push them. And what ends up happening is that one of them will veer off in the woods, and the other one will stop and go the other way because they, they kind of just want to do their own thing. And so my theory is just get them to follow you. Just create something that they want, and then they'll follow you to wherever you want them to go. I think my way is more effective. Ronnie thinks his way is more effective. Nonetheless, I leave Ronnie in charge of moving the pigs. I go back to get the truck. I come back down the road, and Ronnie's standing on the road scratching his head. And I go, where are the pigs? And he points down this huge hill. Well, two of them are down there, and two of them are up there. And he pointed up the hill. And I said, man, what, did you chase them off? And he goes, no, they just ran off. So I go and park the truck. I walk back up there, come back, do the pig call sound, which I'm not going to do on here. And they came running. And I was like, Ronnie, you got to be sweet to them. This is probably the fourth or fifth time we've had this conversation. What do I know? I'm just a silly gringo. Speaking of animals in houses, I've got two other stories about that. If you don't remember, a couple episodes ago, I told a story about Billy catching a bat inside the house in the middle of the night. Well, four or five days ago, I woke up as the sun was just coming up. And here the sun comes up right at 5 o'clock. It's pretty much 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of darkness. So I wake up. I normally first wake up when the sun starts to come up. I don't usually stay up, but I normally wake up and then go back to sleep. So my eyes pop open, and I'm kind of like focusing, taking things in. It's still not real, real light outside. So it's kind of, kind of dark. And I look over, and the area about 14 inches from my head and my pillow was a little black spot on the bed. And I was like, oh, man, it's a freaking moth. Reach over there to shoo it off, and it didn't shoo and it was furry, and it was a dead baby bat in my bed 14 inches from my face where I was sleeping. And if that doesn't give you the heebie-jeebies, I don't know what will. So I opened up my iPad case, and I grabbed a shoe, and I used the shoe to slide it onto the iPad case, and then I went and I put it in the toilet, and then I flushed it down the toilet. But... I suspect that Ronnie was right when he said there is a gang of bats sleeping in the attic. And I'm very happy. I'm leaving tomorrow to go back to the States for three weeks. And while I'm gone, they're to be replacing the roof. So that means that they're going to pull the roof off. All the resident bats hopefully will go away. And they'll be able to seal it back up so that no bats can get in. I'm going to make sure Ronnie knows that. Like He's going to be in charge of this project. And he's going to supervise and make sure that there are no bat entrances and to top it off, two nights ago, I was outside in the hammock, and all the lights were off in the house. It was pitch black. And Bentley comes tearing across the back porch, full throttle, rabbit, wide open. And she's running and slipping and sliding and then makes a hard beeline into the house. And normally when she runs, she runs out of the house and she's chasing something she hears outside or hears a car or whatever. But she runs into the house full speed ahead. 
And so I was like, oh, great. Now, now what are we dealing with? So I walk inside, and there's a blackbird that she would chased into the house. And I first thought it was crippled because it was like hopping across the floor. And so she runs over there and grabs it. And I was like, good girl. I had to praise her because that's what she was trained to do. And it's really, really imprinted in her DNA. So I praised her a little bit. I thought the bird was dead. So I went to go take it out of her mouth, and she let go of it, and the bird wasn't dead, and it just flew up in my face and went straight for the kitchen. And I was like, man, I'm so sick of chasing animals in my house. So I was like, okay, here we go. So Bentley, of course, goes tearing after the bird, and I'm encouraging her because I'd rather she catch it than me catch it. It's just like a, just like a blackbird, like a crow. And I look up, and the bird's perched up on the little spice rack where I keep spices in the kitchen and Bentley is trying to climb up onto the countertop so she can get to it because she can't reach it from the ground and so I finally get her wrangled I walk over there and I'm like I know as soon as I reach for this thing he's gonna start flying it's gonna scare me I'm gonna jump Bentley's gonna go crazy meanwhile Bronco's on the couch like watching halfway awake so I reach up grab the bird I'm like, okay now I've got the bird I'm gonna go outside just let it go see what happens so I go outside throw it up in the air as high as I can and it took off and flew away and that was probably the best outcome that I could have imagined because it could have gotten really bad. The bird could have died. Billy could have crunched the bird, chewed it up. All kinds of stuff could have gone wrong. But it's a double-edged sword living in the middle of a jungle with a climate that's conducive to leaving your doors open all the time. This morning I was sitting outside eating, uh, eating breakfast, and there's these yellow birds that come and they peck on the glass in the back porch. Because it's kind of reflective. And so to them, it looks like it's another male bird. And so they fight it. I always wake up to the tap, tap, tap of a beak and feet onto the windows because they're trying to attack the other bird. But this little guy flew into my room. And I was like, oh, man. And then he turned on flew right back out. And I said, man, that's, that's what I wanted to happen right there. That was perfect. So you got to look around when you go to closed doors because you never know where a bird or a bat is going to be perched. But what do you, I mean, you live in the middle of a jungle, your doors are open all the time, you're going to get critters in your house. It's worth it. All right, I think that's going to wrap up today's show. I know I just mentioned it, but I'm leaving tomorrow for three weeks. I'll be back in the States, do a little bit of hunting, a lot of visiting with friends and family. I'm most excited about eating some good food. I probably won't upload anything um, I might upload a podcast that I did with my friend Eric. It's kind of like an interview. Uh, he does most of the talking. I kind of do some agreeing and question asking, but he's got a pretty cool story. He grew up here in Nicaragua, studied culinary arts, and then went to New York for a little while and then came back. And he's, he's keen on the foodie movement. He knows what's happening in the States, and uh, he's trying to contribute that to San Juan del Sur. So he's got a pretty interesting take on that kind of stuff. Uh, It's one of the funniest people I've ever met. Super nice guy. And uh, he always makes you laugh. So anyway, it's a two-hour-long podcast, so I'm editing it right now. What I might do is just post the whole thing instead of breaking it up and let people just listen to it if they want, whenever they want. I also recently started training with the um, mixed martial arts trainer. This guy's from Poland. His name is Wojtek. And he's one of the most fascinating guys I've ever met. I'm going to try to get him on here because he's got some of the best fighting stories 
Like, he grew up in the hardcore streets of Poland, like a little village where he's like, the only way to get out is to fight your way out. You can't earn it. There's no economy. There's no structure in place for the entrepreneurial spirit. So he got his way out through a couple of different means, but one of them was fighting. He learned uh, karate at a young age, was like the first person under 13 to be a black belt in Poland. Uh, but anyway, I don't know when that'll be. It'll be a long time after I get back, but he's he's funny. Just thought I'd mention it now, mainly because I'm so sore from kicking him. But anyway, that's something that will uh, be coming down the road. Thanks again for listening to Life in Paradise podcast. Check out our website, nikasaleandsurf.com, or you can send me an email at any time at nikasaleandsurf at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. Keep it tranquilo. I sing songs about Texas. I sing them often as if she was some old lover I used to know. I wish I could follow them back to the homeland every time. I hear one on my radio. Twin fiddles playing. In my memory, my daddy said, the wonders of old cow town. Silver haired and he's still there. Hunter got so warm and fair. Well, I tell you, friends, there's a song in every town. So sing me one more song about old Santo. Seemed like a dream now, it was so old.